And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We often hear stories about people that struggle with um, addictions of one sort or another, or in other cases, people that deal with um, depression that uh, is not of their own choosing, but particularly in terms of a, uh, a diagnosis of clinical depression, where people sometimes, in spite of their best efforts, are fighting a, a, a monster that they just can't quite face and deal with. What does it mean? How do you address that? I think that uh, while we've made some great and significant strides in the mental health community in understanding what so-called clinical depression diagnosis is and how to treat it, how to deal with it, for a lot of us in the church, this is still kind of a big curiosity. It's a ministry. Um, joining me now is a gentleman who had to deal with this in terms of um, his um, ministry partner being diagnosed with clinical depression that eventually ended up taking his life. He talks about the story and a not-so-typical journey of a Mennonite actor. The book is called Laughter is Sacred Space. Ted Schwartz, great to have you on the show today. Thank you very much. It's good to be with you. Fascinating book and a lot of turns uh, and I think ways in which we can learn from your life story. Your um, your beginnings are kind of unique in the sense that uh, you were studying in seminary and uh, had full-on plans to become a, a pastor in the Mennonite community there, part of the, uh, I guess, what, the Pennsylvania Dutch community. Yeah, around that area, a little bit east of uh, what we generally consider to be the um, the classic Amish Mennonite uh, Pennsylvania Dutch area, a little bit east of that toward Philadelphia. Okay, so that that yeah. uh, general neck yeah. of the woods, and uh, along the way, uh, it sounds like God had different designs than you did. Is it fair to say it that way? I think that's a pretty good way to say it. Yeah, I I I think that I I'm a person who. Um, it, like many of us, I think we're confused by some of the directions that our lives seems to be taking, and, and uh, God's hand in that may may not be a very uh, very visible at the time being. Makes an awful lot of sense uh, in retrospect. Um, I was supposed to be a, a, a traditional pastor in a pulpit, and uh, fell in love with theater while I was in seminary. And uh, I was an older student, a non traditional student, married with three kids, three kids, and. Uh, and started um, a path uh, toward being an actor and writing writing uh, plays. And uh, I had met a um, another quite talented comedic partner, um, Lee Eshelman, and we began doing comedy together. And then and started working with biblical story and trying to find where the humor was in that story. Not not trying to make fun of something uh, by laying on the laughter on the outside. Um, I like to think of it as finding where the humanity and the humor connect and create uh, situations of humor out of, out of trying to uh, feel out a character from the inside out. How did your your community, Ted, your family, you mentioned it was kind of a, a non-traditional trajectory for you anyway, yeah. insofar as the fact that you were already married and with the family, and I understand that the congregation that was anticipating you to, to eventually uh, become their pastor was covering uh, your expenses and so forth, yeah. and, and, and yeah. you make this, what it would, from an outsider, it would appear to be just 180. How do you go from studying to become a, a traditional Mennonite pastor, very stodgy and serious, you know, as, as I guess some perspectives might be, to suddenly being a comedic actor on a stage, working with a uh, another partner in yeah. interpreting scripture, bringing scripture to life, finding the humor, again, not the ha-ha, let's make fun of it, a, a poke fun at it, rather, yeah. but to see the humanity side, as you say, of it all. It just, it seems to be just two absolute opposite ends of the continuum. 
Well, I think at one level it really does feel that way, and my congregation back home was not very happy with me. <laughs> it's not, huh? Uh, and my wife has been uh, extremely um, patient uh, over the years. As uh, anyone who, who starts their own business then knows that the pieces of, of struggling to uh, to make make ends meet in that direction too. I, I think I've come to the conclusion that it makes an awful lot of sense um, because um, I think theater can be a wonderful metaphor for how we are supposed to function as human beings. Um, uh, to be a good actor means that you're completely present in the moment. Uh, you you have empathy. Uh, you care about another person. That's the only way you can feel like uh, you are connecting to one another on stage. There's a, a great deal of humility and vulnerability that happens when you're an actor on stage. And it makes a lot, a, a lot of sense um, uh, at one level. Uh, and also, um, it's storytelling. And, and story stories remain one of, if not the best way to communicate truth and uh, to grab people's emotions and where their hearts are is to tell stories. Does it make um, it easier to to see other perspectives too? And I ask that question, Ted, because let's face it, when you're when you're an actor, you're you're essentially becoming someone that you're not. And you're attempting yeah, you, to convince yeah. the audience that you're you are this person whom you're not really. Yes, and when you absolutely. get into that position, does it allow you to see things from a different perspective? Is, is that is that how you maybe yeah. eventually were able to say, no, this full-time pastoring thing in a Mennonite church, no, that's not exactly what I'm called to do. <laughs> I, I think that was a great deal of it. I think it's part of why it felt like home to me. I felt like I was finally where I was supposed to be. I think I would have been uh, perhaps a decent pastor. Uh, but there's a good chance that I would have been a very frustrated pastor. Uh, theater allowed me to find places where I was able to use the gifts that I think I was given uh, much more fully. Um, and I think you're exactly right. You have to learn how um, to care about another person uh, to be able to fully adapt on stage and to be convincing that you're you're someone else. Um, theater and acting is a wonderful paradox of pretending to be someone else and being completely holy who you are. Mm. The best actors are the ones that just open themselves up and let you see what's inside. And and that is why we connect to people that, that we feel like are good actors, because we can feel them being completely honest. So to, uh, be, con complete to, be, to be convincing to those of us that are on the other side of the stage or the screen, as the case may yeah. be, yeah. Uh, you, you have to take on, so to speak, enough of this character and demonstrate enough understanding and and sympathy maybe to the point of empathy for who yeah. this person is maybe the plight that they are facing to to be thoroughly convincing and i'm wondering did did all of that experience help make it easy for you along the way in trying to make sense out of um, the 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 horrific challenge that lee was facing with a diagnosis of clinical depression well, that's an interesting question. I, I, I think that um, perhaps so. I, I'm not sure uh, an empathetic person will be drawn, I think, to, to, to the acting in the arts, uh, but it will also teach you. Uh, I think that's probably the case. It, it, it's, you know, it was a complicated relationship in many ways. We were, we were best friends, um, but we were trying to negotiate this business as well as creatively. And anytime anybody, uh, anyone tries to create something together, be it writing or writing music together, they know that there, there's certain tensions on, on, what, on, what, on what that means. And um, sometimes best friends should go into business, and sometimes they should. For us, it worked really well, um, the illness notwithstanding. 
Um, you you spend an awful lot of time together when you have a traveling company. Uh, sometimes we spend more time with uh, one another than we did our wives. We used to joke about it being uh, our second marriage for each of us. So um, I think that was part of it. I, I didn't know a lot about mental uh, illness in terms of depression and bipolar illness at all before we met Lee. Um, and so it was a very much of a learning process. You, you, you try to have as much empathy as you can for the struggles that they're going through, but sometimes life has to, life has to be lived and um, everything can't stop around. Um, if there's a business to run, there's a family to run, his wife, you know, they're raising a family as well. Um, so yes, that, that's very much the case, uh, that it was helpful. But I think any struggle like that that you go together, there's going to be ups and downs with that. And um, uh, and, and it sounds like there were in this case. I mean, you're you're sure. watching this happening. You're trying to understand what's happening, and yet at a level. I mean, I, I guess it's it's not as easy as it might seem to be when we say, "Well, just try to get into the other person's head, walk a mile in their shoes." This is <laughs> this is takes it a little bit further than that, doesn't it? Yeah, it is. It is. Um, it there's only so much you can go. Um, uh, I think it was the illness that that made. Um, uh, I wouldn't call it a barrier, but there's some things that it's it's impossible to know how someone else is feeling when they're when they're struck with an illness like that. Um, my own depression that I felt uh, after Lee's death and, and uh, trying to figure out what was next and, and what did it all mean and the grief that goes along with that. Uh, I remember thinking a couple of times, I said, uh, I, I know what this feels like to, to, to try and function on a daily basis with something that is much worse. Um, I don't know how people do it. Um, that gave me a little bit of insight, but it, 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 I want to be very clear that it was nowhere anywhere close to, to what you would have gone through on a regular basis, where simply getting out of bed feels like it's the biggest struggle you're going to do, go through that day. Yeah, I mean, we're in a season, for example, this time of year, when a lot of folks struggle with varying degrees of depression because... It's a first major holiday with a loved one who was passed on. Uh, there's there's some sense of loss in life, and uh, all of a sudden the holidays don't seem to mean as much as they used to. And there may be folks listening to our conversation right now saying, you know, uh, Ted, Craig, I'm there right now. Uh, I struggle with getting out of bed in the morning. I'm not quite sure how, how to get myself motivated. Uh, it's every fiber within my being to get up, get dressed, and go to work and try to put on a happy face when I don't feel like doing any of that. Um, what does all of this mean? How do I address all of it? Um, joining me today in the conversation, Ted Schwartz. Um, Ted, as we mentioned earlier, is a Mennonite actor um, who talks about life after uh, his creative partner took his own life uh, following a multi-year battle with bipolar illness uh, that he eventually succumbed to the disease. And uh, how do we deal with varying degrees of, um, be it depression to an, uh, one extreme uh, to, to outright uh, mental illness on another? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. 
conversation today is with Mennonite actor Ted Schwartz. The book is called Laughter is Sacred Space, a not-so-typical journey of a Mennonite actor. This journey from studying to become a full-time pastor to discovering the, the arts and then moving in a ministry direction that way, and then the diagnosis that we mentioned earlier of your partner, Lee, struggling with a clinical diagnosis of, of depression to the point of being bipolar. We talked earlier, Lee, about uh, folks being depressed around the holidays, and that certainly can be a challenge. But Lee's, uh, Lee's disease went much deeper than that, didn't it? Yes, it did. It was, it was the kind that, um, well, I described it at one time, just, it's, the, uh, it's the constant companion. It's the monster that hides not just under the bed, but around every corner. It's, it's part, of, uh, part of every day. It's part of, um, it's, I, I call it sometimes the demon that sits on the shoulder and whispers in your ear. Mm. Um, it, it, it's hard to... Um, it's hard to really articulate some of the issues that, that we seem to, to deal with. Medication is an important part of anybody's treatment, medication, and therapy. Um, but that can, uh, most of those have, uh, at least at some level, um, uh, medication, I mean side effects that affect also uh, who you are as a person. And, and it, uh, it it can be frustrating because you don't think you, you are who you uh, are at the core of your being. Um for some, it, it becomes um, uh, a spiritual dilemma, and um, I really don't think it, it, it should be. Um, people cast themselves in, 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 in being distanced from God because they have this particular illness, and, and I think it's a, uh, it's a horrific, um, I'm not sure I'd call it a mistake, a misnomer about, about what it is. How, how did you discover, how did you first find out about Lee's passing? Well, it, in, in many in many cases, apparently, uh, in young men in their early uh, early to mid twenties, it can it can uh, surface. Um, so I met Lee when he was twenty three, and uh, so there were certain certain hints of it before that. And uh, I was in full time school, uh, in uh, finishing college, and then going into seminary. So I had a certain amount of of um, life that I was doing there with a family of three boys, um, uh, very young, four. Four, two, and six months when I started school. Uh, so I and my wife were, were really engrossed in that. So it wasn't until Lee and I began uh, to do a bit more work together and started seeing each other as, as, as friends and friends of the family. He was still single at the time. So it was within two years that it started to surface. And um, um, I mean, everybody has points where they're despondent, um, but they usually see that there's, uh, oftentimes we can see that there's a light at the end of the tunnel and we, we help, we talk to people, we we talk to pastors and we talk to friends, we talk to counselors, you get professional help and you can find your way through it. Uh, for me, it just seemed to be uh, uh, something that, that the yo-yo, the manic, manic parts were, were exhilarating and scary at the same time because he was tremendously creative. Uh, he, was a, he was a visual artist and he was a, a wonderful actor at the same time. So he'd be wonderfully creative at those times. Um, I think uh, a 20 to 30 year uh, struggle with this um, can wear you down. Um, so where that the highs are no longer very high, uh, but the lows continue to be low. Um, uh, that's what I, I felt like I've experienced with Lee, and um, 
at the point where he he had taken his life, it didn't feel like it was too, in, in my mind, tremendously different than any other events over the previous 10 to 15 years. Um, and you know we often hear that that yeah. we look at these the circumstances immediately surrounding a person's decision to take their own life, yeah. and you say, well, you know, the day before, the day yeah. of, they I saw them that morning. They seemed to be quite normal. Yeah, a couple of things had happened the day before that might have added a bit to the stress, but didn't seem That's to be right. anything over the the top, anything extraordinary. But you mentioned yeah. something, uh, and uh, maybe it was just in, in quick passing, but I think profound observation, Ted, and that is the idea that this tends to wear you down after yeah. a time, that this is not a single event, but layer upon layer upon layer. Am I right? Exactly. Exactly. We we had attended a concert the night before, uh, about two hours away, with another mutual friend. I had a wonderful time. Three, it was guys' night out. We we had a, a great time. And then the next that morning, uh, we set up for a show. We were due to do two performances locally, Friday and Saturday night. And we set up on Thursday morning. Um, so all of those things seemed very familiar. Um, there was, I, I knew he was agitated, or, or I should say, he was he was uh, anxious. Um, that that didn't seem to be anything tremendously different, and um, you know, in 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 almost twenty years on the road, we missed um, one show for a snowstorm, and um, a second half of a show because I fell and, and uh, con- contuded my arm uh, on the edge of the stage. But in twenty years, that's the only shows we've ever missed. So it never entered my mind that we would miss a show um, for this particular reason. Let's pause on that point. We're going to come back to more of our conversation. With us today is actor Ted Schwartz. A look at his book, Laughter is Sacred Space. I'm Craig Roberts, back with more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back to our conversation today. Ted Schwartz is with us. His book, Laughter is Sacred Space, uh, newly published, by the way. And uh, you can, of course, uh, order a copy through the usual suspects, including Amazon.com. And, uh, Ted, is the book available also on your website? It is TedAndCompany.com. And company all spelled out. Correct. The and and company all spelled out. Ted, I'm curious. How did you get word of Lee's decision? Uh, I was making supper, and uh, I got a phone call from a mutual friend who was a neighbor, uh, and it's not somebody you, you know, it's a friend, but it's not somebody I expect to hear from uh, around that time. And uh, she said, um, the words is someone with you, and those are never good words to hear, and uh, said, you need to come over. Um, it didn't tell me exactly why, but it, it didn't take a lot of imagination to to uh, figure that out. In the moment, so, we say we're shocked, we're surprised. But thinking back on it, is it fair to say that there were enough signs there that you might have seen some of this coming? I, I think the words that I used, and I think a number of other people use the same words for similar situations, is you're, you're surprised but not shocked, or yeah. you're shocked but not surprised. Yeah. Um, it's those kind of... Those kinds of issues that um, um, that I think anyone who's, who's been touched by it at all, uh, if, if from a very close or personal basis, would, would feel familiar. That's 
That's a good way to describe it, yes. On the backside, what would you say that you've learned from this? I mean, we look at these tragedies, and I know we go through the, gee, what should I? What could I have done differently? What could I have said? How could we have intervened or helped? All of those questions immediately flood through your mind, and, and we, we struggle with. But then as we try to make sense of it all, we try to find the, uh, what do you say, the, the proverbial silver lining in this cloud, yeah. things of that sort. Uh, I have started to uh, be in conversation with a young man or, uh, of a similar age that Lee was who is struggling with a similar issue. He's very talented. He's not an actor, but we've uh, done some work together with uh, from the technical um, video aspect of it again. And I think it's to be there, to be listening as much as possible, to be empathetic as much as possible, to encourage them to see professional help. Uh, if medication is part of uh, a prescribed um, um, Regimen that that you listened uh, that you listen and uh, what, what happens many times is, is especially from people who have um, perhaps a spiritual or religious background uh, maybe you're a Christian and you feel like this is not something my my well being should not be dependent upon something that comes in a bottle and we uh, and they sometimes um, they go off medication um, that that can be very dangerous um, that's often the trigger point. Um, for uh, a deeper crash, um, which um, can have similar results, not always, but it could. Um, what I've learned, oh my. Um, I think what I've, what I've learned mostly, uh, you would say, is that, uh, that the depth of, of, of care, the depth of spirit within the community that I'm in right now is much, much deeper than I had imagined that it might be. Um, what I've learned about dealing with someone with this particular issue is that um, um, you can you can be there as much as you as you can, um, knowing that there are other forces, there are other illnesses that you you just can't fix. Um, no uh, no amount of talking or listening that I that I could do would change that. Um, And, and, and what you said, I think there's perhaps significant because so often we get into the, well, if I just said this or somehow that somehow we we convince ourselves that we can talk somebody out yeah. of clinical depression. This is not an individual who simply is having a difficult time sort of, uh, shall we say, connecting right. the dots in life. And uh, one or one or two good lessons from a slightly older American will set them no. on the right path. No. Uh, this goes much <laughs> much deeper than that and, 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 and maybe the efforts in trying to convince ourselves that we could have said something that would have changed it all miraculously uh, is, is, is really torturing ourselves at a level, isn't it? I think it is and that's, that's the one thing that I continue to, uh, to struggle with. I actually talked to another, another um, uh, radio station this, this morning um, uh, and I've started, I, I've written a, a, a one-man show based on the book, um, based on my experience, not just with Lee, but a large portion of it is the relating to Lee and the discovery of art and theater together and, and, uh, and his suicide and what that meant. And that um, it's not uh, original with me by any means, but uh, mourning is, uh, the act of mourning is, a, is, is just that, an action. You choose to mourn, you choose to do the things that are self-care. Um, it's a decision that you make. Uh, grief is completely different in that you don't know when it's going to show up. And um, 
it it and and I I say in the play that I, I made the uh, the sarcastically a brilliant I say it sarcastically a brilliant decision to not make a decision to mourn but instead to work harder to recreate myself and my business as, a, as an acting company and then to fight the grief and the one of the ways that we fight the grief sometimes is not always but sometimes is to deny deny its existence by convincing yourself that you didn't care that much that it didn't matter that much it's the way that we try and protect ourselves as a coping mechanism it's a coping mechanism. It's a dead end. It's it's uh, what I say in the plays. It's a bit like taking a rancid piece of meat and throwing it behind the couch and hope no one notices. <laughs> um, you know it's going to catch up to you sooner or later, but you just try and hide it. Yeah. Um, and and that, um, I think it's the biggest thing that I've learned is that um, um, <laughs> that that's not a very wise thing to do. Does this also for change you? To, does it force you to become more forward-looking? And by that, I mean oftentimes we'll get stuck in the past on this thing. Uh, well, there was a suicide in my family many years ago, and boy, the amount of time that, that many of us spent and all the what-ifs and gee whizzes yeah. and so forth. And yet, I think instead of, you know, while there is a time of mourning and certainly the time of grief, then yeah. to say, okay, instead of channeling our en- energies into what we can never change because it's done, what yeah. can we do moving forward to be more sensitive, more caring, more empathetic, put more into life, get more out of it, and 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 maybe make make things better for somebody else, if not for them, for somebody else. I think that's I think that's a, a great sentiment. It is astoundingly hard to do when you're in the middle of it. Um, I think that's ultimately where we need to end up, and I think um, I can't speak for Lee, obviously, but I think that's where he would want want me to be. Um, I I I think what what, what truncated my 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 recovery uh, and healing out of that is I um, I chose not to recognize the deep grief that was there and moved forward a bit too quickly. Um, part of that part of what happened when Lee died is not simply losing a friend; it was losing the business as well. So, if I was going to maintain my company, I had to, um, in essence. Um, recreate uh, an entire um, inventory. Um, so I just began writing and wrote eight shows in two years and ten shows in three years um, to to create a new identity, to create a new brand because um, most people that knew us as a company assumed that the, that the company was gone. And so it was coupled. It, it wasn't just losing my best friend. It was losing... Um, it was losing a source of income. It was losing, uh, you know, all <laughs> the inventory, as it were, uh, was intellectual material that was uh, stuck in our heads. That was the inventory. Um, so uh, I probably moved a little too quickly, but I think overall your sentiment is correct. There's very little that can happen in moving um, moving back, but it's, it's a difficult thing to fight guilt. Um, guilt is such a powerful um piece that, that moves forward. Uh, anger is another negative energy that, that is easy to hang on to. Um, and both of those can be debilitating toward moving forward. And a combination of guilt and anger, boy, it just keeps you spinning. Yeah, so. and it can be terribly uh, paralyzing, too, in the end game. 
Ted, we appreciate the time and the candor today. I know it's a, a painful topic to to relive in a sense, and yet out of your pain and your your insights, you offer us, uh, oddly enough, a lot of the pastoral care that you set out to, to prepare yourself to do in the first place. Isn't it amazing the way the Lord brings things full circle? Ted Schwartz, Laughter is Sacred Space, the not-so-typical journey of a Mennonite actor, and the new book, as we mentioned, is a newly published by Herald Press and available through Ted's website at Ted and company.com and now back to lifeline with craig roberts Craig Roberts, along with our special guest in this segment of the program, Michael Hodden. Michael is a journalist, a foreign correspondent, also a foreign policy analyst. He has reported extensively from the Middle East, the Balkans, and even the former Soviet Union. His work has appeared in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, New York Daily News, and on and on the list of, of great papers, including even the Jerusalem Post. We're talking today about the new book that he's written based on his experiences in the Middle East, specifically in Lebanon, called The Road to Fatima Gate, The Beirut Spring, The Rise of Hezbollah, and The Iranian War Against Israel. You came into Beirut at a fascinating time when, as you indicate, uh, th- this push of Hezbollah uh, toward uh, the, the whole the Cedar Revolution, as it was called, and removal of Syrian involvement in, uh, in leadership there in the, in the government um, came to fruition. And, of course, this is an interesting organization because, ironically, Hezbollah has been supported by Syria, supported by Iran, and has been perhaps the number one kind of a, a rock or stone in the shoe of Lebanon going back the better part of some 20 years now. Yeah, almost 30 years now, actually. They've been around for, for quite a while. It is 30 years, you're right. Yeah. yeah, it's amazing that they've been around that long. And they're stronger than they've ever been. They actually have more rockets and missiles in their arsenal than most national armies of states. I mean, it's ridiculous. You know, we've got these Al-Qaeda guys living in caves in Afghanistan, and here's Hezbollah, which is bigger than the Lebanese army. And much more powerful than the Lebanese army. And, and what's curious about this is there, 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 there is a level of uh, organization that, if you look at their organizational chart, uh, it's almost like you're looking at a map of, of the, you know, the, the, the three layers of, of, of branches of government in the United States. This is an organization that is, while it began with roots, I think, largely as a revolutionary organization, um, they have branched out into providing social services. They run their own television station, a satellite at least. A radio station. Uh, they've got print publications. Uh, they even have a, a full-time media consultants. They do, and they have hospitals. They are—they literally have built for themselves an Iranian satellite state inside Lebanon. What, what's curious about all of this, and, and what comes to the, the real core, the point of your book, is that as much as there seems to be these layers of, of legitimacy, if I can use that word, to Hezbollah, and, and where it is today from how it began 30-plus years ago, uh, I guess we need to be mindful that their, their statement of purpose, their mission statement, really hasn't changed much since the mid-1980s. There was, a, in fact, I think a 1985 manifesto that they produced that talked talks about one of the primary goals, the obliteration of Israel. They want Israel wiped off the face of the map. Has that budged at all in the ensuing 25, 30 years? It has not budged one iota. There are many people who like to believe 
when they were when they were fighting Israeli soldiers in Lebanon that they would stop fighting when Israel left Lebanon. And Israel did leave Lebanon in the year 2000, which was probably a good idea for all sorts of reasons. But one of the reasons for leaving Lebanon was not because Hezbollah would call it a day and disarm and become a normal mainstream political party, because that's not what happened. They continued waging a war against Israel even after the United Nations certified their complete withdrawal. So it's not just their rhetoric where they say that their objective is is to destroy Israel. They actually, you know, they continue to fight even if they're even if they're no longer a resistance force, which is what they called themselves, fighting an occupation. They're, they're now fighting another another country entirely. That's a UN member state. All right. With that said, give us some perspective as to where things are today. And I know you've had some unprecedented levels of access in in meeting with people that are involved in in, in organization of terrorist groups. Um, you've talked to the leadership within Hezbollah. Um, you've talked with prime ministers. Give me your sense as to why you draw the conclusion that this agenda for the obliteration of Israel is something that that has not ceased and in fact continues to be. Uh, one of the primary reasons for their existence and what the connection is between Hezbollah's desire to wipe Israel off the face of the map and why its connection to Iran uh, makes this an even more significant and serious threat. Well, Hezbollah doesn't pretend to have any objective other than the destruction of Israel. They, they, they actually put out another manifesto last year, which basically um, just reiterated the first one, their op- open letter that you mentioned that they had published in, in 1985. And one thing we, we've got to remember about Hezbollah is it's effectively the Lebanese branch of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps. And its commander-in-chief, so to speak, is not the Secretary General Hassan Nasrallah. Its commander-in-chief is the Supreme Guide of Iran, Ali, Ham, Ali Khamenei. And uh, if Iran orders Hezbollah to attack Israel, that's exactly what Hezbollah will do. So if there are, let's say that... that Iran is on the cusp of developing nuclear weapons, and they're months away, and the Israelis decide that that is a threat that they cannot live with. And so they preemptively strike the nuclear weapons facilities. Iran would likely activate Hezbollah, and they would fire missiles into the country again, like they did in 2006. But there's a big difference between a war that would break out now on the Lebanese-Israeli border and the one that happened in 2006. Then their missile arsenal could only penetrate one-sixth of the way into Israel. So the major population centers around Tel Aviv and Jerusalem were completely safe. And I was actually in Tel Aviv during the war, and you wouldn't know that there was anything wrong in in, any other part of the country if you weren't paying attention to the news. This time, they have, their missiles can reach all the way to the, from the north to the south. So they can reach the heart of Tel Aviv, they can reach the capital of Jerusalem, and they can hit the Demona nuclear power plant. And so if the entire country is under bombardment and you've got missiles crashing into skyscrapers in Tel Aviv, uh, Israel's going to hit back a lot harder in Lebanon than they did last time. They're not going to have any choice, frankly. And this would be at a time when Israel is also in a state of war with Iran. If Syria could get involved, the American troops in Iraq and Afghanistan could be retaliated against, and the entire region could come apart at the scene. I mean, that's a worst-case scenario. It's not necessarily going to be that bad, but it could, it could be that bad. And from the standpoint of the nuclear capabilities that we know Iran has, uh, is this a further impetus toward, as we've often heard, Israel engaging in some sort of a preemptive strike? 
Yeah, I think the Israelis are likely to do it. If, uh, if there's not an overthrow of the government internally and the Israeli intelligence, which is very sophisticated, their overseas intelligence operations are some of the best in the world. If they if they see that Iran is is on the cusp of developing nuclear weapons, weapons, I, my guess is that they will strike. That it, that it's a threat they can't live with. And from your viewpoint, this is not a question of if, but when. Well, no, it is still a question of if because although I'm not optimistic that that Iran's government will be overthrown internally, it could happen. And that would save uh, everybody a heck of a lot of headaches. How do you see this thing ultimately playing out? Based on some of the potential instability in the region uh, and the fact that Israel is surrounded by enemies that have an agenda, as you pointed out, uh, and now an ever-increasing number of those enemies that also have potentially uh, unstable governments or governments that that may be making as, as much as we say, hey, regime change. Well, what in the end does that necessarily mean? And, you know, there seems to be... Uh, a, a growing possibility, much as what we saw happen in Iran. I mean, they were applauding the the deposing of the Shah back in 1979, and now today, look what we have. So then the question becomes, what could we end up with, and what might be some of the potential tipping factors here uh, to tip the scales in this case, uh, Michael, that you think we ought to be watching? Well, I think the results are going to vary by country. Because the situation in each country is very different from the situations in other countries. I mean, there are, there are things that all the Arab countries have in common. But aside from those a short list of things, they're radically different. So let me talk about Tunisia first. Tunisia, which is where all these revolutions started, I think has the best chance for success. And uh, I'm not sure if I'm quite so confident to say that Tunisia is likely to emerge with a democracy. But they have a pretty decent chance of getting that. I've been there, and it looks and feels more Mediterranean and almost even European somehow than, than, than Arab. It's much more prosperous than most of the Arab countries. The majority of people live in the middle class. The economy is diverse. It's not based on oil. They don't even have any oil, actually. They have a diversified, normal economy on the Western model, and uh, they get a Western-style education. They're, the mosques have a different message than mosques elsewhere in the country. I mean, the, the religious curriculum in the universities teaches Islamic scholars to reconcile the Quran with modern values of tolerance and pluralism and so on. I mean, everything that you would want to see in Tunisia is present. There are also radical extremists there, so we'll, we'll have to see how it plays out. But the odds of the, in Tunisia are very good. In Egypt, the odds are much bleaker. Egypt is poor, it's ramshackle, it's corrupt, political extremism is, is completely mainstream, it's much more Islamicized, and the Muslim Brotherhood is extremely well organized. In, 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 in Tunisia, the Tunisian government ripped the Muslim Brotherhood out of the country root, root and branch and basically destroyed it. Why? Because they were threatened by it. They thought it was threatening not only to their own rule, but threatening to, to the country's culture. And I think they were right. And in Egypt, Mubarak was playing this double game where he also felt threatened by the Muslim Brotherhood and was genuinely threatened by the Muslim Brotherhood. But at the same time, he was constantly under pressure from the United States to modernize the country, to reform, to liberalize, to, to hold free elections. And he liked to point at the Muslim Brotherhood and say, look, 
if you force me to have free elections, uh, the Muslim Brotherhood is only going to grow more powerful. Are you sure that's really what you want? And so he didn't really want the Muslim Brotherhood to be destroyed because he liked, he, because he thought it was useful for him. So uh, it's grown much stronger. And, and to what degree, if any, can the United States be an influencing factor there? We can somewhat because um, the, Egypt used to be kind of sort of in the Soviet bloc. I mean, they, they, they described themselves as non-aligned, but in the truth, they were really semi-aligned with the Soviet Union. And they realized after a while that the Russians were the worst possible allies they could have. For all the, the, all the reasons you and I wouldn't want to be allies with the Soviet Union, the Egyptians decided they didn't want to be allies with the Soviet Union anymore either. And so they, they switched alignment to the West. And the United States military has had a very, very close working relationship with the Egyptian military for many decades. And the U.S. has slowly, painstakingly gotten the Egyptian military to be more professional, more pragmatic, and less ideological. And the Egyptian military is, is basically in charge of the country right now. And their top-level brass has good, close working relationship with ours. And they're actually personal friends with each other. So we have a lot of influence in Egypt that we just don't have in a place like Libya, where Libya has just been an enemy state flat out. For decades, or or with uh, Syria or Iran, obviously. So, the U.S. might be able to still have some influence on what's going on in Egypt in a, in a way that will will be uh, beneficial for uh, for us. Well, we appreciate the time and the insights, and uh, for listeners that are interested in this topic, particularly those of you that are that are followers of what's going on in the Middle East, recognize its role both in, in from a prophetic standpoint as well as certainly, I mean, everything from peace in the region as it relates to access to oil to just, you know, the potentiality of setting off Armageddon. Uh, you can get the book, by the way, through uh, Amazon.com, and uh, it's a, it's an easy read um, that, uh, that I think will offer you some insights that heretofore you don't typically get from a unique perspective, kind of coming from, from the inside, so to speak. Uh, Michael Totten, thanks so much for the time. Again, the book, The Road to Fatima Gate, The Beirut Spring, The Rise of Hezbollah, and the Iranian War Against Israel. That's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to KFAX.com. That's KFAX.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time around, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved.